12. Turn in your Bible to Psalm 12. We have been walking through the Psalms now uh, for a number of months, and um, Jeff and I are doing something a bit odd where we're actually sharing a book. When I, when I come up to preach, I'm not doing a, a one-off, or rather joining together in a book. And now this, this has been a, a, an interesting experience as a psalm, the Psalms indeed is a book of the Bible, written as a book of the Bible, and thus meant to be studied as a book of the Bible, not simply 150 completely isolated and differing random poetry uh, pieces. So uh, as we have been studying together, we've had a, a very sweet time getting to, to talk through a little bit of the Psalms, and he has been a, a huge help for me in my time as I come here today, but we have finally arrived at the 12th Psalm. It is the center of a, a small section in this first book of the Psalms. So if you could and are able Please stand, if you are able, and I will read aloud, and you may follow along as we begin our walk through the 12th Psalm today. To the choir master, according to the Shemineth, a psalm of David. Save, O Lord, for the godly one is gone, for the faithful have vanished from among the children of man. Everyone utters lies to his neighbor. With flattering lips and a double heart, they speak. May the Lord cut off all flattering lips, the tongue that makes great boasts. Those who say, with our tongue we will prevail. Our lips are with us. Who is master over us? Because the poor are plundered. Because the needy groan. I will now arise, says the Lord. I will place him in the safety for which he longs. The words of the Lord are pure words, like silver refined in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times. You, O Lord, will keep them. You will guard us from this generation forever. On every side the wicked prowl, as vileness is exalted among the children of Man, you may be seated. So in this psalm, we are coming, as I've said, to the middle of a section in the first book of the Psalms. If, if you have been paying close attention, you may have noticed that through the last several psalms, there have been a number of similarities between them. We can take a swift glance real quick at the title of our psalm and see that it is to the choir master according to the Shemineth. This is, in fact, a psalm of David, and um, it is one of his many contributions to this songbook of the church. It bears the same title to the Shemeneth as Psalm 6, and to that extent is where the similarities will end compared to all other psalms. Believe it or not, as we can see, there's, there's very little general context given here as we enter into David's song. Now, we will see some internal evidence that will paint a bit of a, of a picture of what's happening as we walk verse by verse. And in short, we will see that this is a time that David writes of great spiritual darkness. This is a time of great spiritual darkness, not merely of the cultures at large, but of the culture even within the people of God. And in fact, this great spiritual darkness has opened the floodgates for rampant wickedness and utter depravity to run loose. With this context in view, 
we will walk through this 12th Psalm, this Psalm of David. But we're going to see during this time three flows of thought, if you will. Three flows of thought. And so first we will see in verses 1 and 2, David's cry for help amidst his circumstances. We'll see in verses 1 and 2, David's cry for help amidst his circumstances. Next, we will see David's affirmation of God's response and God's faithfulness, found in verses 3 through 6. And finally, we will then see David take great comfort. We'll see David's comfort, the keeping of the saints amidst the wicked, in verses 7 and 8. So turn your attention to the first two verses of Psalm 12, and we will see this first section here. Save, O Lord, for the godly one is gone, for the faithful have vanished from among the children of men. Everyone utters lies to his neighbor. With flattering lips and a double heart, they speak. It is here that we see David's cry for help amidst his circumstances. Now for those of you with children... You will know and empathize with the endless search of continually broadening and expanding standards of selecting a name for your child. This is a search that my sweet love and I have been endeavoring on recently as we prepare to welcome this son that the Lord has given to us. Now, there are a number of criteria that we have found that we personally enjoy using in the naming process. There's questions like, would you like it to be a familiar name or one of more exotic roots? Would you like it to sound good with the names of your other children? Though after the first 18 years of their life, most likely those three names will never be heard in conjunction with one another. Would, would you like it to be a name that has some form of meaning in of itself, on its own, apart from who this child turns out to be? Well, along with all of this, my wife and I have developed a bit, of, a bit of a principle that we enjoy to use as well. It is known as the highway principle, and I've been racking my brain to remember where this has come about, and I believe I've figured it out, but for fear of getting it wrong, I will not say. But we call this the highway principle. When naming our children, the idea of the highway principle is simply this, am I able to call out this name in such an abrupt and immediate way that if my child were running headfirst toward a highway, I would be able to have their name leave my lips before they are struck. Can I get the name out fast enough to stop them? This takes, unfortunately, Nebuchadnezzar and Mephibosheth out as options for our son, much to my chagrin. But the idea is this of the highway principle. The nearer you are to danger, the less time you want to use wasting words. The closer danger draws near, the far fewer words you need to use to communicate the problem. And it is at a point such as this that we find our forebrother, David, in Psalm 12. His opening words here are simple, they're short, and they're desperate. Danger has drawn near indeed, and so he cries out simply this, save, 
Oh, Lord. This will be no prayer like the Pharisees who believe that upon heaping of words they will find some kind of ear of God with their whimsical tongues. He opens this song with no introduction, no build-up, no context. Rather, as a panicked father bursting into the ER with a wounded child draped over his arms. David cries, save! Another translation is simply, help. He doesn't even throw in a me, simply, save, O Lord. Now I wish to call your attention just briefly to whom he addresses his cry. As we venture through this psalm here, there's a danger, in fact, that we may find the words of his tongue are very similar to words that we have muttered even within this past week when we watch the newsreel. But lest we start nodding our heads and begin to, in fact, miss the meaning behind the words that David speaks, let us instead pay attention to whom he speaks. He calls for help, and he calls it to, oh, Lord. Here David finds himself in dire straits. Long gone is the David who stood in awe of the heavens spanning before him in Psalm 8. Yet his head stays pointed in the very same direction, the heavens. Oh, we would be greatly blessed to even glean just this much from David. That there is a great difference between complaining of the wickedness we see all around and pleading with God on behalf of it. David does not gather his like-minded buddies around him and bitterly bemoan the wrongdoings of the outside world. How often in times of fear and danger do we go about spending a lot of time talking about God? Talking about what God should do. Yet, how little of a time do I spend on my knees crying to the God that I'm so quick to talk about. And so slow to talk to. Hear David's plea and to whom he pleads. Save, O Lord. David's not looking about his surroundings and deciding that with a sharp enough sword, with wise enough education, with tight enough laws, and with good enough parenting, these problems will be all but fixed. David, the king, who had the right, a right more than any other, to take up arms against the problems that he saw, he instead takes to his knees. And what is it that has David so distraught? Whereby he cries, save, O Lord. He says, the godly one is gone, for the faithful have vanished from among the children of man. David is looking about himself, looking about the culture of his own people, Israel, the people of God, the light to the nations, and what does he find himself seeing? The godly people are gone. When he looks to see who is faithful and who can be trusted, he reaches the same conclusion of Moses when recounted that which took place in Genesis 6, verse 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Depravity has been let loose. 
And as William Plumer comments, unchecked depravity manifests itself with great uniformity. One by one, faithful, godly, honest, candid men disappear from the community. As when clouds arise in the night sky, star after star is covered until not a ray of light comes down to cheer the traveler below. Oh, rampant wickedness abounds and the godly are gone. The faithful vanish. There's bleakness on the horizon in every direction. And David starts to sound like the throng of others throughout history and scripture who stand aghast at the prevalence of wickedness that is celebrated among men. He, in fact, sounds like many of those that you may know, even in this very town, that bemoan the wickedness of the world. This is indeed the common complaint of the church of all time. Let me say that again. This is the common complaint of the church of all times. We have a tendency often to think that there has never been a time like this. That never has there been a time of such debauchery or such flagrant and flamboyant wickedness. And yet, in order to think of such a thing, we must first forget the church of the days of the prophets and the apostles. The very ones who write this scripture we bind our hearts to. Speaking of such a thing, Charles Spurgeon has said, The present times always appear to be especially dangerous because they are nearest to our anxious gaze. And whatever evils are rife are sure to be observed, while the faults of past ages are further off and are thus more easily overlooked. Oh, why does it appear that we have never had an era such as ours? Because this is the first era we experience. And thus, it seems hopeless. Remember, dear follower of Christ, that even this day, thousands of years after David, nothing new has happened. Each generation has had much to deplore, including our own. Therefore, this is not simply David looking at, the, at, the con, at his personal context and finding it different than he would like, and thus bitterly lamenting the things, wishing things were back to better days. Rather, David is observing the true nature of the times, of the godlessness within the people of God, calling out to God in desperation. Following this, he explains, what does it look like for the godly to cease, for the faithful to vanish? He says this, everyone utters lies to his neighbor with flattering lips and a double heart. They speak. So this is not just as though people aren't happening to make it to temple on the Sabbath. This is, this is not simply the fact that the people of God are not doing great things. This is not simply a spiritual slump. That the people of God find their walk with Yahweh God to be a lukewarm and tepid connection. This is a time of such dark spiritual disillusionment. That far beyond neglecting the righteousness by which the people of God were called to live. Instead, the people of God were finding opportunity to rebel against the Lord in the basest and simplest levels. 
in simply how they spoke to one another, choosing to replace truth with lies, honesty with deceit. Matthew Poole describes David's surroundings by saying, Men have lost not only serious piety here, but even common honesty in their words and dealing with men. This is how you know the Bible has clearly nothing to do with us, right? Since we've come so far in our thousands of years. Never have we seen those in charge and those who surround us, those who make decisions for entire masses of people being filled with deceit. Never before have we seen a time of people in a position of pastor misusing it for their own wicked ends. The Bible clearly has nothing to do with us, does it? This seems logical, but think of the depravity of such a thing, okay? Think of the depravity of the world that David lives in, where people of God would rather lie to their neighbors rather than tell them the truth where they may go about pretending that all is well when silently sweeping their sin under the rug. They live in the dark, covering their depravity behind their brightly lit Sunday morning smile. Imagine living in a world where the people of God would prefer to flatter others, to make people feel good and better, to make sure they are staying positive and encouraged, where someone may see a person that they say they love careening toward death, And rather than lovingly pursue such a person with the truth, they instead shower compliments upon them in hopes of remaining in a good light in that person's eye. Imagine living in a a place where the people of God don't call sin what God clearly calls sin. Possibly they diminish sin Saying something like, oh, that can't be a very big deal, because I know tons of people who struggle with that. In fact, one might even say it's common to man. I know this is hard for us to fathom, but try to imagine the world David sees here. And this leaves one obviously wondering how such a situation could have possibly arisen amidst the people of God. Well, David connects here. This depravity of tongue right where his Savior Jesus will connect the words of our lips to the people's heart. He says, with flattering lips and a double heart they speak. Now that term, double heart, is only used one other place in Scripture. And here, in essence, what it means is they speak with two hearts. Literally in the Hebrew, it's a heart and a heart. They have one heart to share with others and one to keep for themselves. These men think one thing and speak another. They say one thing to one man, travel across the room to say to another man something different, and pray that they never speak to one another. They use glossing lies with ensnaring eloquence and misleading arguments in support of the wretched cause in which they live within. Why would this be? Why would this wickedness abound? There was not a pure heart among them. They were as those with double souls. No one stood pondering the truth given by the Lord. They did not think themselves accountable before the Lord. So why ever in heaven would they be accountable to one another? 
B.P. Horn says it well when he says, When men cease to be faithful to their God, he who expects to find them so to each other will be much so disappointed. Thus we hear, as David's tone turns from a cry to a call, from a godly complaint to a God-word pleading, he cries out, May the Lord cut off all flattering lips, the tongue that makes great boasts, Those who say, with our tongue, we will prevail. Our lips are with us. Who is master over us? Because the poor are plundered. Because the needy groan, I will arise, says the Lord. I will place him in the safety for which he longs. The words of the Lord are pure words, like silver refined in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times. This is David's affirmation of God's response and his faithfulness. He says, may the Lord cut off all flattering lips, the tongue that makes great boasts. Now David calls the Lord into action. He truthfully truthfully says something more like a promise than a plea. He calls out that the Lord might cut off the lips of these liars and flatterers. They go about deceiving one another because ultimately They are utterly self-deceived. Just as no one stands with a puffed chest and confident swagger before a starving she-lion unless they do not know that she lurks in the shadows with her claws unsheathed. So also, these people make great boasts, not realizing that the shears rest at their lips, waiting to slice. These boasters have paid no mind to the Lord's word called from the burning bush. Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? They believe that with their tongue they will prevail, meaning that they can say what they wish to say, live as they wish to live, and there is no one who might call them to an account. This allows them to even then believe that they are masters over their own selves. They say, our lips are with us. In other words, they belong to us. They are used for whatever we wish them to be used for. The natural heart believes such a thing. The natural man's heart thinks that just because we have the ability to talk, this means that one can go about using that faculty however they jolly well pleased, however they wish. Now pay mind to the fact that the weapons of any kind, of any era, can destroy cities and nations, but the tongue, oh, this weapon, the tongue, can destroy entire generations. As we've seen beginning, we have seen this very thing beginning with the flickering silver tongue of the serpent in the garden. To his final boasts, until he will at last be silenced at the end of Revelation. These people make such great boasts, and yet they do not realize that the voice they hear within their own head is the hollow voice of the evil one who cries from the infernal lake, I am your Lord, and right faithfully do you serve me. Oh, they deceive themselves, believing themselves to be their own masters. 
and thus they cry great boasts. Might I be a kind voice of reason to the life of someone here who may be so deceived? Should you find yourself here today and you're unrepentantly able to identify with these self-deceived men? Should you be the one that, though you might never say it with your lips, yet your life screams, who is master over us? If what is true depends on what feels right to you. If what is right and wrong depends on what seems right in your own eyes. The word clearly says one thing, but it just doesn't seem to you as though that could be true. So the word must mean something else. depending upon whether or not it fits with you and your opinion. If your life is a continual costume change of trading one mask for another, depending on what fits the moment, what is going to be most fit to get you what you long for, then please, allow me to be the voice beckoning you back from the snare by which you tie upon your own feet. Learn with me these three simple lessons that I was taught this past week by a man named Dixon in my study. Number one, might we learn that nothing which we have is our own. Oh, that nothing which we have is our own. Whether it be our tongues, our talents, or our time, it does not belong to me. Number two, whatsoever is given us of God is for service to be done to Him. For all things done to others are as done unto the Lord, according to Jesus. In judgment day, as He said, you who have done to the least of these have done to me. You who have not, have not. Whatsoever is given to us of God is for service to be done to Him. And finally, That whatsoever we do or say, we have a Lord over us to whom we must be answerable when he calls us to account. Oh, please, if you are one who has been here self-deceived today, hear these three truths which will break into full reality. Upon us one day, as waves upon an unsuspecting child who has waded too deep into the ocean. Oh, I invite you to cry out with me the very words that David began this psalm with. Save, O Lord. Let not a moment pass. Now when David's people say, Who is master over us? Meaning something to the effect of, Whoso is our master as to hinder us from saying and doing as we please? We ought to know that this is not the language of their mouths, for they were Israelites. They had a God above them. They were subjects, in fact, of his kings. Rather, this is the language of their actions. Scripture often tells us not only what men do actually say, but what is said by their actions. After he has quoted the hearts of the wicked around him, David now will quote the Lord God's response. Because the poor are plundered, because the needy groan, 
I will now arise, says the Lord. I will place him in the safety for which he longs. What is the Lord's sweet voice to this king? Calling out in desperation over the wicked state around him, he says, I see and I hear and I arise. I see, he says, the poor plundered, the mere oppression of the saints, whether they silently bear it or not is in of itself a cry to God, just as Moses who stood beside the Red Sea was heard, though he spoke nothing. Just as Jesus feels the persecution of his people as it was upon his own flesh when he says, Saul, why do you persecute me? God hears the needy groan. Know this, that blood and tears both have voices. Blood and tears both have have voices and they cry louder and they are heard farther than thunder. They can travel even to the throne room of God, though shed in some secret place on earth. As Cain's, as Abel's blood cried to God in heaven. The whimper of the godly man's hell on earth is the trumpet blast in the ears of the God in heaven, and nothing moves a father like the cry of his child's pain. Though breathed in silence on earth, the moans of his people cannot be kept from his ears. David knows the whispers of the needy echo in the courts of God. He hears in heaven, and he is moved. He is moved by the groaning of his people. Let me draw brief attention to the fact that we're now in Psalm 12. And and we've actually heard this phrase, Arise, O Lord, repeated some close to four times previously in other psalms. David has cried out, Arise, O Lord, arise, O Lord, arise, O Lord, arise, O Lord. And here we see The Lord's response, I will arise and place him in safety. Now, why should we believe such a claim? In fact, it's taken so many petitions to get God to respond. Why should we believe him? Aren't saying something and doing it two different things? Yes, indeed it is with men who often promise rashly what they cannot do. And say deceitfully what they never intended. But this is not so with the word of the Lord. And so David reminds us of this fact. The words of the Lord are pure words like silver. Refined in a furnace on the ground. Purified seven times. In short, this explanation shows the sincerity of God's word. Particularly in this specific promise in verse 5 but also more generally in all of his word as a product of who he is. Everything in his word is really as it is there written, and nothing is otherwise. It does not joke, it does not deceive, and it does not take advantage of us. 
nor does it have any other design toward us than to do the good God intended. Oh, the word of the Lord is pure. Thus, David's point here is to reassure the nation of Israel as they sing this song that God's promise is certain. As he says it is, so it shall be. Nothing great or small can contest his whole and complete word, just as chaff cannot contend with a whirlwind, nor the feather with the burning fiery furnace. Neither can sinful man war against the Almighty to stop his word from being proven true. Neither the multitude of God's enemies nor the fewness of his friends will affect at all the certainty of the Lord's deliverance for the righteous. And at the close of this confident proclamation, we find our final and third flow of thought. Here we see David's comfort. The keeping of the saints amidst the wickedness. You, O Lord, will keep them. You will guard us from this generation forever. On every side the wicked prowl, as vileness is exalted among the children of man. Here we hear David is ending this psalm, this this song for the choir master, but he does so in a very unique way. What, What is most fascinating about this is that he does not end the psalm on a positive or encouraging note. He, in fact, ends the psalm in the very same fashion that he began it. With an honest, forthright analysis of the circumstances around him. In this we see that not one single thing has changed about the circumstances in which David finds himself. On every side the wicked prowl, as vileness is exalted among the children of man. The comfort in which David calls people to seek here is not the relief of circumstances. It is not a great awakening in the church. It is not a moral refresh refresh to the culture around us. It is not a revival in and amidst the church. Those are such sweet realities, a sweet delicacy enjoyed through the ages, by few blessed generations, good, indeed, sweet, true, longful things. But this is not where David encourages us to look for hope. It is no new thing for the church to be small. Let me say that again. It is no new thing for the church to be small. In ancient times, it was reduced to the family of Noah. In the days of Elijah, there were but 7,000 who did not bow a knee to Baal. Christ's people are a little flock. The strength of the church has and always will consist, not in the number of her visible members, but in the almightiness of her head. Yet, Wouldn't it be easier for David just to leave us at verse 7? 
Wouldn't it be easier for David simply to promise good, holy, high, and heavenly things for those who love God? Wouldn't that maybe draw this title to the top of the charts? Yet David is no fool, you see. It was the men who flatter, the men who deceive, the man who speaks with two hearts in order to make sure that others look upon him in favor that David has reviled throughout this whole psalm. David has no illusions. The Lord has spoken, but this does not mean that the situation in which he finds himself has suddenly changed. David will not be as the double-tongued fool. He will indeed point to the hope Christ's people have, but he will be completely honest about the world of crosses in which God's people will still dwell as they are kept by his unyielding hand. The world was so corrupt that David puts the world and God's people all into one bundle. It is of great importance to remember that he does not here speak of foreign nations, but of the Israelites, God's chosen people. This is not some indictment of the outside world saying, Ew, look at those sinners out there. Thank you, God. Thank you that I am not like these men. This is David's pen standing in the pulpit before his people. The chosen people of God. And he says, vileness is exalted among the children of man. Oh, how we have been deceived, my brothers, by that which shines, but is made of no silver like the word of our God. We exalt the vile and thus the wicked prowl. They go about as a bear amidst beavers, utterly unchallenged and without hindrance. Who was the generation from whom he would guard us forever? It was the people of God and the lies that they had welcomed in, the vileness that they had begun exalting. So we see David takes here but one comfort. Through the wilderness of wickedness we still must bear through, he finds one comfort, you, O Lord will keep them. You, O Lord, will keep them. David's comfort is not found in the removal or isolation of the righteous from the wickedness all around. His comfort is not found here and now in the removal of the tongue from the wicked, though that is indeed a day that draws near in David's eyes. What is his one comfort? You, O Lord, will keep them. You will guard us from this generation forever. Our forebrother David encourages us with this, that it is by the Lord's ear that David's groan is heard, and it is by God's hand that David is kept. This is his one assurance, that he is kept, and that God will keep him in the keeping of His hand, His people. Well, now, this causes quite a problem. 
in the reading and interpretation of this psalm. Do you see why? This comfort which David takes is quite concerning for you and me. Because when we read this psalm and we hear the promises of God are for those who are righteous. And we read that he is to cut off the tongues of those against his beloved. We ought to start to worry. Why? Because of what David said back in verse 1 and 2. David said, the godly one is gone. The faithful have vanished. Everyone utters lies. This psalm is very encouraging when we are the poor and needy. It is filled with comfort when we are the righteous ones looking over across the great chasm that separates me and my tiny sin from you, those who actually have real big sins that God seems to be concerned about. I speak tongue-in-cheek here because we heard from David's own lips, the godly one is gone, the faithful have vanished. I'm not able to read this in my natural state and see myself as the good guy here. For there is no one good. No, not one. So where are we to find hope? David, you ended on a downtrodden note and we can't even take the comfort and encouragement of the rest of it. Where are we to find hope? I come bearing good news this day. For this psalm has found its fulfillment on the mind and possibly the lips of another before us. We read of it in John 12, verse 27, and the beginning of verse 28. Now is my soul troubled, says Christ. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? But for this purpose, I have come. To this hour. We read in this passage of Jesus as he begins to think through the torturous path that lies before him. The cross is looming just around the corner, and his heart is deeply in anguish. Now is my soul troubled. It's the churning of deep waters. Why? Not because he is about to die, simply because his death would be painful. No. These are indeed troublesome, but they are nothing in comparison to the most heinous reality that awaits this perfect God-man's soul. No, Jesus stands looking to the cross, and his soul begins to churn in anguish, contemplating the reality of what it will mean for him to become sin for sinners. You see, upon his unblemished shoulders is about to hang the entirety of the wickedness of his elect against a perfect, holy, and infinite God. Not just this will he become sin for us, but also then he will bear the just and right and vengeful and infinite wrath of God that will be poured out upon him in such agonizing depths the likes of which we cannot contemplate nor comprehend. Oh, Jesus is the King. 
He stands and he looks at the cross that looms. And what does he say? As Jesus sees the depth of the depravity about him, he sees the whole of human sin. And as he sees that there is no one good, no, not one, Jesus cries out, And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. Shall I cry out as my chosen King David did all those years ago? Shall I, shall I call down curses upon the wicked and cry for my own just deliverance? Oh, blessed be the perfect lips who uttered these words and shall receive our worship for all of time. For Christ Jesus says no. He will not cry out, save me. No, in agonizing love, he calls out, for this purpose I have come to this hour. And then beginning in verse 28, he cries, Father, glorify your name. You see, Christ came for the wicked and the sick. Christ came for the lost and the hurting. Christ came for the lonely and the overwhelmed. Christ came for the abused and the vulnerable. Christ came for the needy and the poor. He came and he refused to cry out, save, so that all of those and any more who might cry out to him might cry out, save me instead. Oh, hear this glorious news, my friends and neighbors. Christ is the only perfect one. Christ is the only one who deserves to be kept, the only one worthy of keeping his tongue, which only ever glorified the Father, and yet he held his tongue's cry that all who would cry out to him might be forever held by his Father. Oh, it is in Christ and Christ alone that we hear this psalm read today. And might find hope. For it is by the seven times purified silver words of his tongue. That we can be made white as snow. That we can be kept. So what of application? For you who here would be called redeemed. Unredeemed. Sinners, you who find yourselves here and you know yourself to be not in Christ, you've been living this life as the flattering fool of verse 4, crying out by your life, your mind, or your words, who is master over me? Here it is for you today. This psalm speaks to you, my sweet deceived friend. David here gives us a prayer, a simple and sweet prayer. Save, O Lord. God looks upon you this day if you are not in Christ Jesus and be assured he does not smile upon you. He is not a warm grandfatherly old man in the sky who winks at your sin and chuckles at rebellion. His anger and wrath are set against those who refuse his son and his shears stay at the ready in his hand, prepared to cut. Oh, would you hear the words of our Lord Jesus, sacrificed for you upon that wretched tree, 
forgive them. They know not what they do. Would you turn from your boasts? Would you find your place at his feet? Would you see his blood shed for you? And would you in repentance cry out with this King David, Save me, O Lord. What of those of us who would be considered the rebellious redeemed? You might be here today and you know that you're in Christ. But you are surely not living like it. You've been living in some kind of rebellion. You're still treating the lion of the sin in your heart as a kitten. Perhaps you're living in some bitterness, living as a gossip, possibly spiritually apathetic. Possibly you neglect the duties of the Lord, or let's be honest, maybe you're just living in outright deep debauchery. You look about at the lies around you and you see first and foremost they dwell deeply in your own heart. You see the brokenness in the church about you and yet you see even more that you are in dire straits. Caught, trapped, bound by sin, hemmed in on all sides. Oh, would you hear this? David's prayer is for you. Day by day to be used in every circumstance. Save me. Oh, Lord, would you see the beauty of the fact that you are only ever one step from repentance? Oh, turn from vanity. Take hold of the promise of the Lord that he arose and he has set his in safety. You who are in Christ are no longer slaves to sin. Oh, hold this beautiful promise to your soul and flee to the one of whom David said, you, O Lord, will keep them. He and He alone is able to keep you. Nothing can separate us from His love in Christ Jesus. Even our sinful rebellion. He will turn you back. For He holds you. He holds you in His beloved's heart. He is able to keep you. Even still. Turn back. Lastly, for we redeemed sinners who look about this world and find our souls in unrest. When you see the absolute perversion that is no longer simply accepted in this world and in the church, but celebrated. Truth is trounced upon in mockery. Children are being deceived at every turn. When you see wickedness all around, when you hear the lips of those who claim to love God pouring out emptiness and vanity, oh dear brothers and sisters in Christ, you can feel in your chest the same heart that beats in David's. Surrounded by fears and sorrows. Concerns not simply for the next generation, but the generation in which you are counted. What comfort might we take through such a psalm as this? A day is coming when sorrow will take her eternal leave from the hearts of the redeemed, but it is not this day. A day is coming when peace and righteousness shall be the fawning love of every sinner made new, but it is not yet this day. A day is coming when at last the Lord's will shall be on the earth as it is in heaven, but Yet not today. It is this day. 
when the Lord no longer says, I will now arise. For He has arisen and He is risen indeed. We look to the person that this very psalm spoke of generations before His advent. And we hear this very God praying, For you, all mine are yours. And yours are mine. And I am glorified in them. I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. And I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me. That they may be one even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost. The circumstances around us may go from bad to worse, from worse to World War III. Still we are promised here in this psalm two promises. First, that the wickedness in this world is allowed today to remain. And removal from the trial was never God's immediate plan. Secondly, we are promised that though in this world we will have trouble, those in Christ Jesus are kept. He will keep you. He will keep you from turning to the corruption and wickedness that batters at the door of your heart. He will keep you in the midst of the sorrows and sufferings of this life. He will keep you through this generation and bring you home safely for all eternity. What does this look like? Being kept while the wicked prowl. I spent a brief time in Guatemala doing some service work with a missions team. And our host leader was named Jared. And he was a, a man who was about my height but nearly double the weight. And he was sheer muscle. He looked more like an action figure than a man. He was a boulder of a man. And, well, on one of the last days, the group that we were working with decided that they wanted to take us on a bit of an excursion. And so they brought us out to this rural wooded area where they liked to swim in this little body of water that was fed by a rather large waterfall. This waterfall was no joke. It was a beast. And when the water rushed over the fall and struck the water below, it carried with it a force that could make any mother quite nervous of her small children swimming anywhere near it. Regardless of the mighty size of this waterfall, there was at the very base of it a very large boulder that rests to the bottom of the pond, lake, whatever it was. And, and it had been rounded into this sleek dome over years and years of erosion. And it had that thin layer of greeny, gushy, moldy goo that seems to thrive for some reason where everything else dies. Well, apparently it was common practice for the young local children to compete against one another in a test of who could outlast the longest by standing or sitting on this slick, round rock beneath the fall. Well, one such youth challenged Jared, my stocky, strong leader, to see who could outlast the other. And this particular leader was never one to turn down a competition. So he goes first. He walks to the ledge then, that, that, that sits beside the rock. He centers his gravity. He flexes his quads. And then he takes one strong step out onto the rock. 
And I pay you no joke, before his feet had even really made contact to the boulder, the waters struck his shoulders and head, his feet gave way to the nudge of the mossy green rock, and that big, strong adult man, though his rippling pectorals could rival that of Hercules, went whoop right off the rock. He looked like a kitten on a water slide, and he sounded like it too. Oh, after a healthy humbling of laughter took place by everyone within a 10-mile radius, he swam to the surface and called with a smirk that it was the little boy's turn. The little boy's smile flashed as he dropped to his hands and knees. He crawled lowly through the dirt to the rocky ledge beneath the fall. Reaching slowly out, but as though he had done it countless times before, this little boy slid onto the smooth surface of the rock. His tiny little body had to have in that moment endured something like being pummeled by the weight of a rhinoceros upon his back. Water gushed around his face, which he kept planted inseparably from the rock to which he clung. This boy, who was the size of Jared's little finger, knew an important lesson that Jared had not yet comprehended. No man's strength could outmatch that of this monstrous waterfall. Oh, but no waterfall, were it to have all the strength of all the earth's waters, could outmatch the strength of the rock that stood unmoving, unflinching below. Therefore, this boy did not need to outmuscle the failing, falling waters. Rather, he needed to desperately cling to the rock that had proven its strength from the day it was placed beneath the torrent. I had my chance to sit, as this little boy did, beneath the fall, and I must say, it was an experience I would rather not repeat. It was a miserable occasion. Oh, the water was suffocating. Not only because, in essence, this is a God-designed form of massive waterboarding, but also because the weight of the water, when pounding against your flesh, makes one feel as though they will never truly be able to draw a full breath again before having it struck and knocked out of the back of them. And yet, there I was. As I clung to this mighty rock, something amazing happened. The wave after wave sought to throw me like a pebble, skipped across the pond. I, little I, could not be moved. Not because I had any strength, but because I was clung to the rock. The power that kept me, no matter the strength of my body, or the roaring waters, I was kept. So it is to be kept by him as the wicked prowl on every side and rearing up even from within my own heart. The wickedness within the church may be suffocating, but still the rock shall stand. He will keep you. You may be overwhelmed and battered to bits. You may ab be abused, mistreated, and maligned. Yet only more tightly to the rock shall your face be bound, for he shall give no ground. He will keep you. 
Oh, he will hold me fast, though the breath rips from my lungs, though fear is my breakfast and sorrow my dinner. Upon this solid rock I am kept in Christ. You, O Lord, will keep them. You will guard us from this generation forever. As Isaac Watts once said, In the old hymn, Our God, Our Help in Ages Past. O God, our help in ages past, our hope for years to come, our shelter from the stormy blast, and our eternal home. Under the shadow of your throne, your saints have dwelt secure. Sufficient is your arm alone, and our defense is sure. Before the hills in in order stood, or earth received its frame. From everlasting, you are God. To endless years, the same. Father God, we stand as your people by your keeping alone. If any of us, our souls, dwelt in our own hands, we'd have lost them the moment they slipped through our fingers. Lord God, as your servant David penned this psalm years ago, we cry out to you day by day, Save, O Lord! And we thank you that you already cried out, I will arise. Oh, it is bound in the perfect word you've granted that we humbly trust your keeping. Lord, would you let us, as Jude counsels, would you let us keep ourselves in your love as you keep us. Lord, would those unrepentant here today Cry out this simple, sweet prayer. The one step away from repentance. Oh, Lord, would those in you unrepentant today cry out, save, O Lord. And might they take hope and comfort in a promise they finally can hold to. That you will keep them. Oh, Lord, as those of us here today fear and tremble of the world and its circumstances. We tremble at the state of the church. We we tremble at the truthfulness, the faithfulness even of your own word. Oh, would we take such hope and comfort that you keep your people. Would we take such joy and comfort knowing that though the wicked prowl, we are kept. Though the waters rage, we are bound to safety. Not in this life, but to be ushered into the next. Holy in you. 
Father, we pray your word to churn in our souls today. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.